0: I'm Tom Keane with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: On the show this morning, Jim Cochin of Wells Fargo Funds, and Tony Crescenzi, Portfolio Manager at PIMCO, who joins us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Let's pick up the pieces from what happened on uh, Friday. How is what happened in Washington Friday afternoon playing out in the fixed income morning. space? Morning.
2: Well, <laughs> risk premia is being extracted out of bonds. Uh, it's a little too much for this early in the morning yeah. to say, but what <laughs> we mean is that – Bond yields had been moving up, uh, call it from a 180 just before the election, 1.8% for the U.S. 10-year to about 2.6% or so. Some of that increase, of course, reflected the fact that the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates twice uh, since the election, in December and then, of course, in March. But some of it also reflected the idea that perhaps there was some risk – of the U.S. economy getting stronger than anticipated, stronger than the 2.2% or so pace we've seen of recent years. That risk is a little lower in the bond market size now. It never really was high, though. Uh, the bond market for some time has been pricing for the Federal Reserve to keep its policy rate really low, call it 2% mm-hmm. or so by the year 2020, well below histor- historical norms of closer to f- 5 or so, and certainly cl- lower than previous peaks. And so the bond market had already been thinking, well, there could be a Trump bump, but maybe it won't last. And so uh, it's, it's back to that idea. And it's just reinforced and it's keeping yields low. But don't look for yields to move a lot lower. The Federal Reserve more than likely will keep raising rates. Final, final point is because the economy in and of itself is faring pretty well, especially the global economy.
1: Do you see this, uh, the healthcare vote as a litmus on, on uh, Trumponomics or on what the administration's
2: proposing here? What does it, what does it tell you about what's to come? Not necessarily. And we know from the past that Donald Trump learns from lessons and usually tends to, tends to bounce back. And healthcare is a, a lot different than uh, the tax story uh, in, the, in this sense. Uh, think of Medicare. It was a program created in 1966. It's never been shrunk. It's only been increased in size uh, repeatedly. Not that that's a bad thing, but uh, it, it's very difficult to take a benefit away from American citizens um, rather than give them something. So, healthcare reform was uh, partially about taking something away, the potential of cuts in Medicaid, for example. Uh, tax cuts is like Christmas to Americans, or, or, well, you could say. Uh, it's it, giving a gift. Uh, Washington is giving a gift, saying, here, don't pay us a, a small amount of taxes. So, it should be easier. So, so, in terms of lessons learned from healthcare, healthcare reform, healthcare historically has been difficult. Uh, Pulling back, taking back a benefit is difficult. And that's been the case in Europe, especially. Um, But um, giving something to people, that's going to be a lot easier, but not to say it'll be easy. When you look at the the fixed
1: income space right now, uh, how big a role is politics playing versus uh, central banking or,
2: or the Federal Reserve? Politics in fact, we'd say our is playing a very low role mm-hmm. in, in the bond market in one sense, but a very big role in another. A very low role in the sense that um, Washington has been dysfunctional for a while. The numbers of laws passed by Congress in the last four years is the, the least in about 200 years. Uh, that inaction has been hurting the U.S. economy. So that keeps bond yields down. Uh, But you could say that it's very important to the bond market in the sense that its inaction, its inactivity, is what's suppressing productivity in the United States, which is a key driver of growth. Uh, For listeners to understand, the U.S. economy has grown at about a 3 percent pace historically. That's usually because there's a 1 percent increase in the numbers of human beings to make goods and services and a 2 percent increase in how productive they were in in making those goods and services. Uh, These days, the productivity numbers are far south of 1 percent. And this is, the, and it well, reflects the lack of government action. I to, want to come to support right. It. I
0: want to come right back to this with Tony Cosensy with Pimco with us this morning. Bring it up here on a chart, I'll put this out on Twitter for your gazing. Probably use it in Facebook Live today as well. And that is the inflation-adjusted five-year yield. With us, Tony Cosensy of uh, Pimco. Real yields aren't there. The financial repression continues. Do you have any framework that removes us from a financial repression?
2: Yes. Um, Janet Yellen believes there is. She, I, won't you. That, I don't care what she thinks. <laughs> oh, well, this, we, <laughs> we're talking to Chair Crescenzi. We would agree Chair with Kresenzi. the idea that uh, over time uh, the real rate, the, the neutral rate, will move higher. Uh, there are f- aspects of the financial crisis that still linger. For example – credit growth. It was once, of course, before the crisis very strong. The credit impulse isn't as strong as it used to be. It's believed that over time, banks will loosen up their purse strings, especially now in an era where the regulatory impulse will be a little bit lower or less uh, stringent. So if banks open up their purse strings and lending picks up uh, globally, uh, then, of course, that, that affords the likelihood of a faster increase in nominal GDP which coincides with uh, higher real interest rates, uh, but there are elements there that make it difficult for the real rate to rise. a real neutral rate, the neutral rate for the Fed's policy rate, of course, is where the Fed's neither pressing on the gas, or the brake. Where it's happy with where the unemployment rate is today at 4.7 percent and inflation close to two percent. Um, historically, that that rate uh, has been about four and a quarter percent, the nominal level, and inflation running around two. So call it about two percent real. These days, of course, uh, it seems that we've got a much different scenario, and it reflects in part the credit impulse. And many believe that the new neutral rate is not 4 percent but 2. Uh, we'd say it's probably in the 2s or so. And what imp- what keeps it down in part is not only the credit impulse but the demographic influence. Mm-hmm. 80 million Americans aged 55 and older mean that the labor force won't be growing as fast as it used to. It won't be as many human beings to produce goods and services, the, the numbers have increased that they used to be in the baby boom uh, heyday, that sort of thing. And also productivity, the lack of investment by companies and government is impairing the ability to produce more goods and services. So picture this. A company five years ago could have had 100 employees and 50 computers. Today, because of a decline in what they call capital intensity, the amount of capital in place per unit of labor, that company has 100 people, 48 computers fewer things in place per unit of labor to produce goods and services. That constrains growth and Tom keeps the real interest rate down because then growth simply isn't as strong. And so what would change it is a change in productivity. It's what the equity market's leap of faith is partly about. The idea that government will take action that encourages companies to invest more. Now, by itself organically, since the global economy looks like it'll grow nominally about 5.5% this year, uh, which will lead to probably a double-digit gain in corporate profits, there'll be some gain in capital spending. Did you just say
0: 5% nominal GDP in the the United States?
2: Globally. No, in the United States, is more likely to be it be, be lucky to see four because that's inflation, not
0: politically <laughs> acceptable.
2: It's around four, call, call around, it around four. four doesn't well. you get know? It done. Look at the charts. You'll see it's been under four. For does several does years.
0: under four or around four percent animal spirit in the United States mean financial repression forever?
2: It means it for a long time because okay. and Janet Yellen said August twenty-six in Jackson Hole. She said if productivity were to increase. Uh, that it would quote raise the average level of interest rates. Sure. Unquote. She knows that if productivity increases at a faster pace, it would be more income for companies, more income for people, more spending on goods and services, a higher nominal GDP level, and higher interest rates. But yet we still not, are not finding evidence of this change. But there should be from the global product, from the global pro- corporate profit gain, and hopefully from corp- from corporate tax reform and cuts in individual tax rates. Hopefully, because that's what the stock market is going to be clinging to at this point. You propose a, a mantra for the Fed, you protect the path. Protect the path. On, <laughs> Explain extraordinarily that. Extraordinarily important. Yeah. Uh, it looked like to the bond market beginning in the, at the election that the prospects for faster economic growth were good. So the bond market vigilantes – Those who worry about inflation came out. In other words, they sold bonds to say, give me a higher interest rate because I think, we think there will be higher inflation. So the 10-year yield in the U.S. went from 180 to 260 quickly. So the Fed's job to protect the path was to to be tough, to be vigilant, to show resolve. And Janet Yellen, December 14th, in a press conference, she did. She said, hey, we might raise rates more and we're going to do it today. We're going to do it again. And ever since she toughened up, there have been two rate hikes since then. Uh, Yields have peaked. In fact, the yield peaked December 15th. Only two weeks ago revisited that level for an instant. But that 260 was the peak because the Fed got tougher. So the Fed's actually raised rates twice and yields haven't gone up any higher. It's protected the view on how high the rate the Fed's policy will eventually go. Uh,
0: And there's a lot about this, including the Atlanta index, on the number of um, hidden rate cuts we've seen. Tony Kosenzi, thank you so much with PIMCO.
1: whose prescience was on display Friday morning when he wrote uh, that the American Health Care Act was going to die in one of two ways, either on the House floor uh, or the Senate floor. We saw it die uh, before getting to the House floor on Friday afternoon. He joins us now. And, Greg, let me just ask you, as we uh, move ahead to tax reform here, we'll talk about that in some detail with you here, what the lessons learned are about what happened with the American Health Care Act, particularly when it comes to how this White House interacts with the Congress. Well,
3: a lot, David. Good morning. I think that uh, there's a need to uh, lobby better. There's a need to bring in the Freedom Caucus, the moderates. Uh, I think the White House feels they got so oversold by Paul Ryan. Lots and lots of lessons, lots and lots of reverberations that have led to tremendous infighting over the last 48 hours.
1: I, I uh, you know, I'm looking here at your, your your Friday note. You say the difference between deal-making in New York City and deal-making in Washington have never been uh, more apparent. What did Donald Trump, what did President Trump get wrong about this process?
3: Well, you, you can't set arbitrary deadlines. You can't make threats in this town. Threats don't usually work. Uh, you have to get into the nitty-gritty. And maybe most importantly, health care is an albatross. Every administration that owns the issue of health care regrets it.
1: You say that the next issue, this is in your your, your note this morning, the next issue is not tax reform. Explain what you mean by that. Tom mentioned a few moments ago the specter of a government shutdown uh, in April. How much oxygen is that going to take up?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's all this glib talk this weekend, Dave, like, oh, now let's do tax reform. Well, it's not quite that simple. You've got a bruising partisan fight over the budget over the next few months, really, before we get a debt ceiling extended in the summer. But maybe more importantly, there's no agreement on tax reform. If we thought health reform was complicated, it, once again, it's the Republicans who don't yeah. agree. Should, should tax reform be revenue neutral? Should we have a border tax? There's no agreement among Republicans.
0: Greg, Greg, help us with the zeitgeist this morning. Your note a bit, but other notes really emphasizing that the inside baseball debate is April 28th and a potential government shutdown. Is that even feasible that we're going to redux? What was it, 2011?
3: I don't see it. I, I don't think Schumer wants to have anything to do with it. I think the White House will browbeat its opponents and will avoid a shutdown on the, on the 28th. Uh, I think there's going to be a huge fight over the Trump cuts, and many of his spending cuts will not occur. You'll get defense spending increases. The big fight is the debt ceiling this summer.
0: Help me with the CBO score, which changed the debate of health care. If yep. we do a tax reform, And if we have this border tax, that no, health care, et cetera, et cetera, do they score again sometime this summer?
3: Well, Tom, we're going to look at dynamic scoring, and it's going to be very generous for proponents of tax reform. You're absolutely right. We lose the revenue from health reform, and we also would lose the revenue if we don't do a border tax. So there's going to be some smoke and mirrors, I think, in the final scoring.
1: I looked at the tweets this weekend, calling out the Freedom Caucus Club for Growth, Uh, And heritage, the president doing that in a tweet uh, yesterday morning. What are the consequences of that going to be? It's fair to say a lot of this administration's policy proposals uh, began or grew up in in the Heritage Foundation.
3: Well, they did, but I think Trump now has to move away from them. I think he views them as radioactive, and I think he's got to at least hint that he could work with Democrats. The problem there is that. Why would the Democrats want to throw him a life preserver right now? And even if they did talk, I don't think there's enough agreement between the two parties. So what Trump has got to do is get his own Republicans more on board. That's still going to be a tough fight.
1: Uh, with regard to Jeanine Pirro-Gate... Uh, yep. and what happens to to House Speaker Paul Ryan when the House is gaveled in? How much longer does he have as House Speaker? Do you think is is his speakership in jeopardy?
3: I don't think so. I, I think that you know his knowledge of the details is encyclopedic. Maybe strategically he leaves a little Come bit on. to be desired, but the the main thing, guys, is that there's no logical successor. Yeah, to I Paul agree. Ryan.
0: I agree with that strongly, but Greg. Come on, help me here. I put out a tweet, and, you know, I'm playing amateur Greg (laughs) Villiers. To me, I have yet to have a single straight answer what the rush is. What, What... yeah. Who, who who do you blame for the childish action of trying to rush this thing through? we got to get it through
3: before yeah. opening day of baseball. Yeah. I mean, they all drank their own Kool-Aid, didn't they? <laughs> and they all thought this could be done quickly. It would be a great accomplishment. I mean, this would be the easy one. The the naivete and the hubris of thinking health care would be the easy one is
4: astonishing.
0: Yeah. well, I, I mean, I put out a photo this weekend, folks. I had to go to back something ancient to keep Greg Vellier happy of <laughs> tip o'neill yep a president from california i believe he was governor at one time yep. and actually realized like schwarzenegger there's like process and work involved and sitting quietly next to them at their messy table of beers was a god named a guy named bob michael yep what yep. can mr what could speaker ryan learn from mr michael of the upper midwest
3: Well, he's got to lower expectations, first of all. I think that's really important. You know, Trump went around the country for a year and a half saying daily that the politicians in Washington are stupid. They didn't know how to negotiate and that Trump was the only one who could negotiate. I mean, Trump has set himself up for this fall, sort of like Icarus. He flew too close to the sun, and now he's crashing back back to Earth. This is a stupid stunning defeat for him. And I'll make a strong statement that for the markets today, the issue is not entirely tax reform being delayed by many, many months. The issue really may be for the markets is this guy in over his head.
0: Mm. Well, not only that, David Gura, but also what will economic growth be? I mean, I think there's a real mystery to that as well.
3: But there's a great angle, guys, I think hasn't been emphasized perhaps enough. With this kind of economic uncertainty, this kind of fiscal uncertainty, I don't think Janet Yellen is going to be in any rush to raise rates anytime soon. So rates actually may stay flat to slightly lower because of this uncertainty.
1: Greg, what are you telling your clients right now who who saw what happened Friday, worry about what's going to happen with tax reform, and probably at this point are writing off the prospects for infrastructure spending?
3: I still think we get both, but it's going to come much, much later rather than sooner. We do get significant tax reform, probably early 18. Uh, We do get infrastructure, maybe late 18. Way too early to write the obituary for some of these big items.
0: Uh, uh, Ms. Rubin, over in the Washington Post, I thought had a great thing in the middle of all this last week about the motivations of people. What are the motivations of the Democratic Party now? uh, Supposedly the minority Republicans need democratic votes to move things forward explain to me the incentive for the Democrats to do anything after the discourse from the president of the United States
3: yeah there isn't and frankly I think Schumer is in a trap the the, the left wing is really furious and they want red meat and they want a filibuster Gorsuch uh, I think that uh, Gorsuch is very well qualified I think the Democrats look too obstructionist on some of these issues but Schumer has got to satisfy this very angry base.
1: Were you surprised to see uh, Nancy Pelosi et al. at the podium there after uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan delivered his remarks on, on Friday afternoon? Would you Would you suggest that wasn't the right course of action?
3: Yeah. And, you know, she had an, a, a photo op where she was jumping, jumping for joy. That, that's not what the country wants to see. I think the Democrats run the risk of looking too stridently partisan. They could maybe score some points right now by looking a little more conciliatory.
0: Greg, thank you so much for the briefing. of course, there on Chair Yellen uh, is, well, David, what an interesting soup. I guess this is the Keen Employment Act of <laughs> 2007. Keeping us talking 17. for the next couple years. Yeah. I, I, I tell you, folks, it was, it was amazing. I, I did Get a lot of reading. A Grigville, yay! Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Let me give you a factoid here. I'm working with a Bloomberg right now. I think I may put this chart out on Twitter. It's just so radio
1: You're always working. ready. It's like Santa's workshop over yeah, there. Yeah,
0: bonds, <laughs> negative 4.6% since August. Late summer, even into early August, late July, one bond portfolio down 4.6%. Here to uh, measure our losses, Jim Co- uh, Cochin of Wells Fargo. Jim, good morning. What is your counsel to the beleaguered? Right now, my my mood is, everybody like me, bow ties, quote, yield, where your customers just look at price on the monthly statement. And if it's yields up, price down, are we yet to a panic? Where are we in the bond market continuum?
4: Well... We had a bit of a panic uh, last year. You just cited some of the negative returns that began, oh, in uh, early July and end until the end of the year. Now, uh, so far in 2017, yields have moved more or less sideways. Our counsel has been the same all along, and that is um, investors think in terms of total return, not just price movements, and use those segments of the bond market, focus on those segments of the bond market that offer a reasonable amount of interest income and compound that interest income over time, uh, you will have positive returns. But avoid the longest durations, avoid the longest maturities, because the durations out there are so long. Uh, <laughs> back in July, the duration on the 30-year Treasury was almost 22 years. Mm. Um, we used to We used to think that the duration, oh, back in the good old days— Earlier in my career, during most of my career, we used to think the duration was roughly 15 years, and, and, and now those durations are 20 still, uh, and, and that's too much market risk uh, at a period in which short-term rates are expected to be rising over time. Um, the previous speaker put it very nicely. Uh, Chair Yellen has told us what they plan to do. Yeah. Uh, they've, they've implemented this plan and uh, respect that.
0: Well, David, I just brought up a famous blue-chip stock, and this is a bond out 12 years, pays a moldy 2.25%, and it's down almost 8% in Mm. price from the summer peak, the apex of bond pricing. Jim you?
4: Go ahead. Yeah, if you if you look at the intermediate maturities, uh, particularly in the corporate market and in the high yield market, those total returns are far better. Yes. Now the high yield is biased somewhat. Yeah. No. We no. But recovering.
0: but it's it's come on, Jim. It's yield pig more more a morning. So I'm buying the twelve year <laughs> piece because I'm a yield pig.
4: <laughs> well. Uh, I I would I would be yield further hug. down in the curve because Yeah, but I'm a yield hog. <laughs> you look at the level, well if you look at the level of yields today uh in that 5-year, 7-year, 8-year period uh, area of the yield curves those yields are higher now than they were at the end of the tapering tantrum in 2013. But that is not true 10 years and longer because yeah. yield curves are so much flatter now.
1: Yeah, and, and and on that note I mean you point this out in one of your most recent notes you say there's this argument that the flattening yield curve will protect the long maturities and you say that's very flawed. Explain that.
4: I think it is flawed. Uh, It depends very much on on where you're starting this process of raising short-term rates. Uh, Everybody likes to focus on 04 to 06, rightfully so, um, where uh, the yield curves flattened so much that bonds did okay. But you started that process back then with a curve that was 2s to 30s, 300 basis points. Today, we're at 170. Uh, We have a much flatter curve, and it's no surprise then to me anyway, that since the uh, yield started to rise, uh, you know, starting in July of last year, we've had sharply negative returns from the longest end of the market because yield curves have moved up in almost parallel fashion. For a while last year, they steepen. So I don't think we have enough steepness to the curve to warrant that argument that the uh, long end will be, quote, cushioned by uh, steep curves, you know, and the curves will flatten enough so that even if short-term rates rise from here, bond yields may not. I I can't, uh, I can't agree with that. Jim Cochran, we enough.
1: we were talking with uh, Greg Valier a moment ago about the prospect for tax reform and indeed a prospect for a big infrastructure spending package. Mm-hmm. He retains some optimism that that's going to happen. If indeed it does, what does that mean for the, the bond market?
4: Well, I think uh, uh, I would focus... Well, it's going to mean more federal borrowing, bottom line. Uh, If we have infrastructure spending, if we have uh, a reduction in in revenues going to the federal government, um, they're going to borrow more. And... um we, you talked earlier about the weakness in credit growth, which is in, certainly true in this cycle. Well, this would add to the uh, strength, it, it, this would strengthen credit growth to some degree. And other things being equal, it would suggest that yeah. the price of credit would rise somewhat that is, interest rates, bond yields.
0: Are you like brave enough and got a <laughs> flak jacket on so you can say dividend growth is a substitute mm-hmm. for the gyrations that we're going to see in the bond market?
4: Well, I. I Yes. Dividend growth is extremely valuable in my mind. It, it, it corresponds to what I'm saying about how to invest in bonds these days. Capture income where we can find it and compound that income. And dividend growth is, is extremely important in that regard. And I think uh, in many ways, you know, that asset class even though you know I specialize in that other, in the superior asset class, um, uh, has has a lot to be said for it, particularly versus things like treasuries that don't provide very much interest income. How
1: big is this is this divide between what the Fed is projecting and what the market expects the Fed to do, and how
4: problematic is that, as you see it? It seems to change a lot, uh, you know, depending on other things. Uh, right now, one would think, with, uh, since we've rallied the bonds a little bit, that the, the bond market doesn't believe what the uh, uh, officials at the Federal Reserve are telling us in, with regard to the, you know, the pattern, uh, path of short-term interest rates. Uh, however, if we were to see a new set of economic data, let's say, as we go into the, through the month, the, the early weeks of the month of April, um, the bond market might Get religion once again, and all of a sudden begin to worry about another increase in the federal funds rate. So I think that's the that's the mode we're in um, right now. Uh, we had uh, some disappointment in Washington with regard to uh, the, the president's uh, ability to get it to get a bill, pa- a major legislation passed. So there's this thought that well, maybe we won't see a lot of uh, fiscal stimulus. I I would be very careful before I made that assumption.
0: A lot of this brings back, uh, Jim, uh, you and I are young enough to remember this, how we all read inside the yield book, like religion, mm-hmm. Sidney Homer and Martin Leibowitz. I mean, we're back at a yes. point where you're saying grab the yield and compound it. And, compound and most it. people, it they, do- they doze was- off asleep
4: at how boring that is. <laughs> well, and, and- but That's where we are. That was the message of that book, Interest on Interest. But, but more importantly for investors, yes, grab the interest, compound it. Don't take a lot of duration risk or market risk. And uh, at some point in, you know, in, the, in the future, perhaps it will make sense to extend out upon the yield curve. But I think it's a little bit too early to do that now. But that is exactly uh, the, the, the pattern of uh, over time, your cumulative returns add up. Uh, and, and, and uh, your, your total returns are positive, that's in, in a relatively low-yield world yeah. environment, that's all we have going for us in the fixed-income markets. Can I,
0: Jim, uh, let's continue. Jim Cochin with us with Wells Fargo. Jim, I, I get that we used to clip coupons and not care mm-hmm. about price. I would suggest that's over. Right now, how do I get total return, or is it just grab the coupon?
4: Well, I think grab the coupon. Um, You're right. Uh, There have been times when, uh, in fact, for 20, 25 years, when the trend in prices was up, not down. Uh, But if the trend in bond prices is a moderate downward trend, in prices that is, um, the best defense against moderate declines in prices is, in fact, collecting enough interest income to overcome that. The, the negative influence of the price moves, and um, uh, there are other strategies you mean one can one can employ you can you, you can try rolling down yield curves and so on, but that's really done in a, uh professionally managed accounts. Uh, the intermediate part of the corporate market, the intermediate part of of the uh, single a triple B kinds of credits in corporates, single a triple B credits in um in municipals. Uh, offer better income than treasuries, and they offer better income than the high-grade segments of the muni market uh, or the high-grade segments of the corporate market, for that matter. And then the the high-yield market still, in my mind, offers fair value. That is what we used to call the junk bond market, and the corporate side still offers fair value because um, uh, it's our view that that market yields in, in that segment of the of the bond market move essentially sideways. They, they don't change a whole lot as we go through the, the year 2017.
1: There's a chart in your most recent note here. You're looking at mortgage debt. Mm-hmm. Creeps up, 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 and then over the last 10 years, pretty <clears throat> much flatlines. Explain yes. the significance of that and, and what that tells you about where we're headed.
4: Well, um, you talked earlier in the program uh, about the absence of strong borrowing in this cycle. And the market. Segment that has been the weakest in terms of private sector borrowing money uh, has been mortgages. Like you say, that that uh, you know during the uh, the entire period that chart oh, the last 25 years, mortgage debt has been rising, and in uh, oh 2000 the the first decade of of the 2000s here it was rising very sharply until 2007 2008. Then since then. First, it declined, actual decline in, mor- in the amount of mortgage debt outstanding, which is unprecedented. <clears throat> it's beginning to rise a little bit, but, the, but still, um, since 2007, there's been no net increase in the amount of mortgage debt outstanding in the United States, and that is, goes a long way to explaining why uh, total borrowing by the private sector, the U.S. economy, yeah. has been weak. Uh, now it's beginning to strengthen a bit, um, and if you superimpose uh, a lot of federal borrowing, and that's a big Question mark right, right now, uh, that that would tend to uh, increase the uh, you know push the yeah. price of credit higher somewhat.
0: Jim, in the final minute we've got with you, what are you hearing from clients when you're traveling, when you're in front of client groups mm-hmm. for Wells Fargo? Are they buying equities? Are they talking about they didn't get Snapchat on the IPO? What what are they talking about?
4: There there is not a lot of that kind of talk. I have to say, um, the, the 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 sense we get. Uh, from talking to financial advisors, is that their clients are still cautious with regard to stocks uh, because they, uh, they got hurt so badly in 08-09. Um, there is not that rush into the latest hot stock, apparently. So uh, from the point of view of a contrarian with regard to the equity market, this is probably still good news. Uh, on the bond side, obviously, they're looking for yield. They, they would love to see CD rates at 5% again. Well, we're not yeah. going to see that for quite some time, I'm afraid. Yeah. We, we have to work harder to get that income. Uh, yeah, I
0: yeah. remember CD rates at 9%, showing oh, my Evan. age. Yes. Jim, thank well, you so much. Well, we're
4: not going back to that.
0: Yeah, darn, I thought we were. Jim Coach. thank you so much uh, with a Wells Fargo. Michael Cohen is with uh, Barclays and joins us now in the Commodity Space, as it's called. You've got a constructive view on oil, unlike many others. What will support the bid of oil?
5: So I think what's happened over the last maybe month, month and a half or so, is that typically as we come into this time of year, investors tend to kind of run out of patience. Um, yeah. And I think that what we saw over the course of you know the last quarter of the year was a lot of hope that OPEC, for example, would support uh, the price of oil. And it so the
0: trade is reversed. I mean, and, we're down 12.9% from the peak middle February.
5: Right and i think that there tends to be a bit of a an anchoring bias not just in what's oil what's an anchoring bias essentially means that you know we tend to believe that today's price will hold for a given amount of mm-hmm. time and that you know everything needs to be thought about from today's price forward so You know, it's essentially anchoring your your expectation around you know one or two standard deviations from where we are right now, and I think that that's a a poor way of of forecasting and a poor way of looking at how markets. Well, how do you respond? Let's start. How do you
0: respond to the doom and gloom crowd? How do you respond to people saying we're going to break at forty seven fifty three West Texas Intermediate? It's happening. We're not through key support, Mm -hmm. to be fair. But but how do you respond to the gloom crew saying we're going to enjoy the lower 40s or more south?
5: Right. So I think one has to to look at what is driving the market right now and actually what drove it temporarily, in our view, down in the first place. So, you know, when you look at what happened over the last three to four weeks, we had a, a major industry conference, Sierra Week. Khalid al Falah, the minister of energy from Saudi Arabia, came, saw all the producers and wanted to ensure that people uh, in the market didn't believe you know, all 100% that OPEC would continue its cuts. So he said a couple things to the market and gave some people some doubt about whether these cuts would continue. But essentially what these cuts have done is that they've taken out a significant chunk of production from OPEC, which is roughly 30 to 40% of oil supply today. And I think that's an important transition from today versus where we were a year ago, Mm -hmm. where OPEC was basically pulling out all the stops, pushing on output, and essentially keeping oil prices low in order to drive out uh, other more expensive sources of production. So over the last two years, we've seen two consecutive years of very substantial cuts in capital expenditures. The impact of those cuts in capital expenditures has not yet had time to fully play out at this point. So we were just in the Middle East. We talked to many different oil field uh, service producers, uh, many different national oil companies, and they are of the view continually that – you know, those cuts in capex have not yet had a chance to actually be borne out in overall mm. output. So as we look forward into the next year, I think it's important to understand that the situation in China has also been supportive. We've seen PMIs continue to, to remain at a, at a high level. Um, there's obviously a lot of debate about the, the strength of the Chinese economy. But I think there's also an important right. – thing to understand as well, which is that we're now in an environment where we've got 1.4 million barrels a day of oil demand growth. OPEC's supply cuts is base, are basically flat, yep. and non-OPEC supply is you know up maybe six seven hundred thousand barrels a day.
1: What's the, the the your sense of the the OPEC agreements continuity? In other words, you mentioned there were some doubts raised at that Sarah week conference in Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's the conversation like within OPEC, indeed, without outside
5: of OPEC as well about whether or not that agreement will continue? So OPEC had what is called a a monitoring committee meeting over the course of this last weekend, and the result of that was again. You know, we're not really sure whether we're going to continue the cuts at this point. They didn't. They don't really have authority to do that. Remember, what you have to understand is that this is a political agreement mm. at its root. And I think that's a very important thing to understand is that this OPEC agreement was initiated and is being enforced at a sovereign level. This is not an oil okay. minister level or, or
0: – Help me over the weekend with the photo shoots of 47 boats off Singapore, et cetera, et cetera. Are we a are we up to our eyeballs in oil right now?
5: So actually, what we've seen is floating storage has come down a little yeah. bit. So there's always boats outside. I get of that. Ports. I get there's always <laughs> boats, but it's <as> a general
0: <laughs> statement. At forty, you're talking oils. Michael Cohen is driving oil south as we as speak. As we speak, right. are we up to our eyeballs in oil?
5: No, I, I think what we have to understand you know and acknowledge is that over the last month the time spreads or the the extent of the contango in the market so the, the the incentive to store oil has essentially increased over the last month and that's represented representative of the fact that we are in the midst of a seasonal downturn in oil demand this is a natural yeah okay thing, right as we move into the next two months, we think that the ingredients will be in place for a more constructive picture. And again, this is where the anchoring Fair. bias comes in. And I think that the, the reason that we expect that is that first, costs are not held in stone. Yeah. So shale producers are benefiting from low rig rates, from low, low costs of oil field services that they've been able to benefit from for the last year. They're enjoying those low break-evens for now, and they're increasing their drilling because they can do it, because prices are very low. And as we move into the the next six-month time frame, we think that that trend will reverse at the very same Mm -hmm. time that we head into summer peak driving season.
0: We got to come back. But Michael, I'll I'll, I'll tell you, technically, I'm looking at West Texas Intermediate, and I don't want to go into all the technical mumbo-jumbo folks, but I can honestly say I've never seen what's called a six-kiss chart, which is this thing is screaming south in an extremely well-behaved manner, I could almost teach the chart in a course. Mm-hmm. It is so well-behaved on trend. To your defense, we're not through key support uh, yet, and there's an argument about where that is. But the yeah. fact is, I, I I love the tension, David Gurrow, that we've got uh, in oil here as we stagger through March and April. To when's Vienna? When's the next oil? May
5: 25th.
0: May 25th. Mark that on your I date got writing calendar. Writing it down. Writing my now. book.
5: Yeah. Well, not only just May 25th, but April. Right, we're, we're going to have another monitoring committee in April. Yeah, so. we we have a
0: monitoring committee. We do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> monitoring our brackets. <laughs> we're back with Michael uh, A. Cohen of Barclays. Help me with the rest of the commodities you do. We're oil, 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 which is unfair to you. Is is there like a super? Is a super cycle worked out? Is there a theme to commodities that our listeners can grab onto?
5: I think one thing that we noted over the course of the first quarter is that, um, you know, most commodity prices moved lower for what was broadly a macro driven, you know, Development that you know concerns about the macro economy uh, tended to move base metals uh, lower. There were concerns about um, you know the 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 Trump policies working out and, and being implemented quickly enough that tended to lead to some weakness outside of just mm-hmm. oil. Uh, the other thing is that in natural gas, for example, uh, you saw weather. Driving natural gas prices well below what was a prior you know average, um, and so there were reasons unique to each commodity that led to a recovery. And oil is actually the exception. So in in a sense, we saw copper rebound because of strikes in in mines. We saw gold rebound. We saw natural gas rebound slightly because again because of weather. Um, but in oil, what was interesting is that. Even though here was an, was a, is a commodity where we actually see significant supply restraint by OPEC, oil prices have not rebounded, which could mean either that oil prices are poised to rebound very strongly or that even despite that, there's a structural downtrend that could lead to lower mm. oil prices in the remainder of the year. Now, you
1: mentioned the, the Chinese economy uh, and moving to iron ore, other metals. Uh, what's the effect been thus far of China at its uh, last uh, meeting scaling back industrial uh, uh,
5: overcapacity now taking that somewhat seriously it seems well i think it it did definitely lead to the the decline in some of those major industrial metals but w- since then those constraints have uh started to move away and we've seen the the iron ore price start to rebound um you know i think from from our standpoint our our Chinese economists continue to have a very optimistic view on the Chin- on the Chinese economy, um, and have recently, you know, upgraded their their GDP forecasts, um, you know, based on on what they see as a very active property market, um, and you know, the expectation that there won't be a, a very you know a, a big hard landing scenario. For example, I think from our standpoint, there there are clearly risks to that. Um, obviously, if if the Chinese economy starts to sputter, there's, you know, from an oil perspective and an energy perspective, there's a, a lot of important ramifications, not just within China, but in the surrounding region that could lead to a downturn from that industrial growth. And I think it's important to understand that that industrial component of oil demand and energy demand has been a very large share of the rebounding growth that we've seen from oil demand over the last year. And if that falls away, then it, you know, significantly takes out the, well, the strength of, of oil demand going. I, mean, I haven't looked ages,
0: David, at the Bloomberg Commodity Index, which has got its own mathiness to it. It's actually pretty rigorous and r- really quite good. I mean, you can't call bull market on commodities here, can you?
5: No, I, I mean, I think what what you can look at is that, um, you know, the broader trends that led to the bull market over the course of 2009 through 2012-13 was in large part driven as well by supply constraint in places like Libya. It was driven by, uh, you know, desire for an inflation hedge at at that point in time. Are those ingredients still in place? I don't think so. So we see a much more moderate uh, a much more moderate outlook for commodities going forward taking into account the fact that the the strong growth from China and other emerging Asian countries is not going to be at the same trend as what we saw in the last Eight to, to you know five to seven years. It's about thirty seconds left here. What role is Washington going to play in the commodity space here going forward? So I think it's a huge. It plays a huge role. I mean, obviously, what we've seen uh, over the course of the last three to four months is a lot of uh, a very high expectation that we would get this. You know, broad infrastructure development policy so I think that's that's one uncertainty the second is the the implementation of tax reform and the impact that that would have on importers and exporters uh, within the commodity space the third major thing is the concern over a protectionist, type trade, you know, protectionist trade outcome that could conceivably lead to a reduction in, in global trade.
0: Michael Cohen, thank you so much with Barclays. On oil, the call here for a little bit of a bid and strength to oil. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.